everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of In the Band. Uh, I have a couple of announcements today, actually. And by a couple, I mean I have one announcement. This is going to be the first episode that's officially under the Curious Audio umbrella. Curious Audio is a podcast network started by my good friend Ari Anderson. His podcast, Millennials Don't Suck, is also on that network, uh, along with another podcast called Life Rights. And if I hear myself say the word podcast again, I'll probably freak out. But I'm honored to be a part of it because he's being very picky about who he brings on to the network. And there will be more to join than just these three right off the bat. But obviously I'm doing something right or I'm not doing something wrong. But I'm very happy to be a part of the Curious Audio family. You can go to curiousaudio.co. Not sure why he went with the CO, but it's kind of fun. And you can find all the info about the other podcasts and upcoming events or what have you. But anyway, to get back to In The Band podcast, this week I'm releasing an interview I did just, I don't know, a week and a half ago with Max Frost. Max is a guy I met when we did a tour together last year, actually, and he was opening for 21 Pilots along with AWOL Nation. And we got to know each other on that tour, and I actually meant to interview him while we were traveling together, but... It just, time while you're on tour sometimes just evaporates, you know? It's like you're, you have, you're not busy at all, yet you're always busy. So I'm kind of stoked that we waited because now we got to reflect back on our time getting to know each other, have a much different perspective on that experience, which we talk about. But Max um, performs solo right now, but he plays every instrument as if it was a full band. He doesn't do loops. He's a really excellent technical musician, and his show his show is very high energy, and he apparently really knows how to rock a crowd. He just got back from his first major headlining tour. But anyway, we, we talk about all that in this episode, but he's a fun guy also to talk to because he's not afraid to really speak his mind and sometimes tackle issues that are difficult to talk about. That's kind of what's drawn me to wanting to have more conversations with him. And we talk about judging art based off of the artist as well which is a difficult thing to navigate but I had a really good time talking to him about it because he's one of those people where you know when you're having a conversation it's for the pursuit of truth which is what I always enjoy so I hope you enjoy this as much as I did I'm sitting here with Max Frost. Where can can I say where we are? I think you should say we're at a good friend of mine's house. We're at a good friend of his. It's a very beautiful of Max's place. Max's house. The view is incredible, and uh, the weather's perfect. So we're outside right now in the backyard. It's a it's a serious vibe. staring at the ocean and the mountains. But um, I wanted to start recording because we we were talking about yeah wide open spaces and views, and you were kind of just starting to talk about that. Yeah, and I don't know when it really began for me all this uh i'm not what because people throw the word agoraphobia around and i don't think that's what i have i'm not afraid of going out i'm not afraid of talking to people or doing things like that and -hmm. it's not like i'm afraid like 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 it's fear it's more just a sense of extreme discomfort when i'm in an open space that feels like it's kind of like 
like the, the the most intense it is is when I'm on top of like a rooftop bar in like downtown LA or downtown New York or somewhere where the skyscrapers and the sense of scale is very vast and easily measurable by your eye because you can see things. It's not the same looking out over an ocean. That's that feels a little more relaxing. But something about these big spaces. I used to have dreams as a kid where it it was almost like I'd wake up from a dream but the the nightmare was this feeling of a space so big that I couldn't um it I can't explain it. It's like you know, like it's almost like you feel like you're falling because the space is so big. Yeah. You feel like it's gonna suck you into the abyss. Well, do you get that like you've been to the Grand Canyon? I've never been to the Grand Canyon. Uh well okay, so but like big open fields and you're saying like the ocean, that doesn't do it for you. It depends. Like we, this came up because there's this walking place up here in the Palisades where we could walk up there and get this crazy view. But that one, for some reason, at least the other day when I first got up there, it kind of got me a little bit. It's like so big and open, and and a place. How this kind of comes into context for what we're talking about is, it was something I really kind of had to manage doing that arena tour with you. Oh really? Every not every night, but the did fir- it happened indoors. On the, oh yeah, on the arena because tour? those arenas the. the it was way worse when it was empty. And let me just preface this. I met Max when uh, we were both on the 21 Pilots tour, and Max was opening up and same with AWOL Nation on yes. that tour. Yes, But so he's referencing that tour last Which fall. was such a, a blast, that whole tour. I miss that. I miss that tour. And I'm thinking about, it's really like the first, the day we really met, mm-hmm. and we were rehearsing those covers on stage mm-hmm. with them, and the room was empty, I literally, I was like, I'm panicking because of the space, <laughs> not because of what we were doing. Like the fact that I had to focus on figuring something out and there was all this going on, that was unnerving. But the, the actual like sense of intense anxiety was more just from the space we were in. Yeah. I've so rarely, only three times in my life before that, that day had I ever played a stage that big. Yeah. Okay. And it was just like the space is just insane. I mean, it's like. Yeah, but I'm. It also kind of sounds like it has to do with maybe the density of things in the space. Because like if you're looking at yeah. the ocean and it's just it's all naked. There's nothing there. Yeah. That doesn't seem to do it. But like a skyscraper. Like there's yeah. there's one view in New York. I always sneak onto the top. This like it's called the Hudson Hotel on the Upper West Side. Yes. And I've found a way to consistently sneak up to the roof, and it's the craziest view. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you look at like. You can see all, like facing south, you can see the entire city. Mm-hmm. And the density is insane. And it's like the scale gets really confusing and it's kind of mind boggling when you like try to pay attention to it all and you can get lost in it very easily, which I'm not sure that's exactly what you're saying, but it seems like that would induce what you're talking about. I do also find though that whatever, at some point, I performed, you know, I mean, how many shows was that tour? 27? Something like almost that. Almost 30 shows. And eventually I did. That tour was really a big thing in my life as a performer because it took, it kind of beat all the pretense out of me mm-hmm. and it finally kind of taught me to just kind of, I don't know, it taught me a, a weird, it finally ingrained a real sense of peace on stage that I think I'd been close to having and it had tasted in moments, but that now is like my go-to presence of mind on a stage like you reached a level of comfort on a stage that size yes i think it, it was a combination of a few things one is just the amount of pressure i felt to be in that slot mm-hmm. i felt very much like i didn't deserve to do what i was doing on that tour two was just the amount of people 
Well, it's also a tough slot. I mean, first yeah. to three, sometimes there's still people, depending on the show. Right. That tour was good because people got in really early. It was. A, I was you very lucky. You weren't dealing with like a ton of like people just talking and seating. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, by, but, the, by the time you guys hit the last few tunes of your set, it was a packed it, it, Everyone was sat. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> whoa. Like the they're, the 21 Pilots fans are so diehard that they, they just, really are. Yeah. If, if they could be in there sooner, they would, you know. Yeah, that was the other thing, too, is. And I used to get really uncomfortable, like, oh, man, like, I'm an opener. Am I going to have to sound check in front of the crowd? Are we going to sound check in front of the crowd? It was, like, this hugely, like, I felt so, like, oh, man. It's like, mm. I literally did that so many times on this tour. And <laughs> literally, as the fans are, like, running to the, like, racing to the gate, like, screaming, yeah. already taking pictures, like, screaming at me. They've looked at me, hey, Max, man. <laughs> now I'm so desensitized to all that, I just feel kind of, like... I feel like that was like the like, final. Like you were thrown into the deep end there, and, and yeah, and you really had to learn to swim. Yeah, well, you know, there's that weird sense of. Uh, tell me if you if you understand what I mean. That like when you come off the road, don't you feel like your interactions on the day to day with even with strangers? To me, there's this weird sense of like. I've met so many people in such a short amount of time. I've mm. exposed myself vulnerably to yeah. so many people for so long, but also gained confidence as a person from the the, the reciprocal energy that you experience yeah. during, during a show. I have this, especially the first couple of days I come off of a tour and I'm like walking in a grocery store, I feel this weird sense of like, aggressive invincibility with people. <laughs> like I They're, feel like I could just walk up to strangers and just be like, listen to me. And just tell them like, <laughs> what, I can just tell them to do anything, it's weird. Well, that would probably be taking it too far, but I do, <laughs> I do, I, and I feel I'm scared to say this only because it might sound like an asshole thing yeah. to say, but there is kind of a vibe, especially off of like that Chuan Wen Pilots tour. It's like the day you're home from that, like getting coffee. There's a, almost like you, you almost feel like you're in disguise of like, yeah. do you even know like, what like I've I, been doing? It's, <laughs> to me, and this is this is I'll say this very tactfully and out of respect to like I'm not saying it's anything like going to war, but it's similar to me and what I've heard about the experiences like coming home and that you're just like people that you're around just don't understand it, anything about the dimension you just existed in. And I just mean that yeah, the sense of it the, never stops. There's not the danger. No danger. Like there is in certain, in terms of combat. Yeah. There is the, it, you can't really explain a lot of things on tour if you haven't been on tour, which is kind of a part of what this podcast is about is trying to, but yeah, which, um, is, which I will also say maybe my is there's two, here, here's the two, two sorry, let's <laughs> here, here, here are two things. There are facts about me. One, one of my favorite things to do is talk to other musicians about music and about yeah. touring. My least favorite thing to do is to talk to people about touring who have never been on tour because it becomes this weird questionnaire of like, so what cities are you going to on this run? Well, yeah. Which is like, so you're going to ask me to list a tour ad, Matt? Well, it's... It, That's a tough one. Yeah, That's what everyone's go-to question is. So what cities have you been to recently? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, and it's also like that's it's like not, name name all the cities in the United States that you, are major. If you've never toured before, the barometer of reference is so different. Like in terms of what you would think to ask, because there's there's no there's no axis to be yeah. like, oh, uh, so I'm gonna jump off from this point. It's like there's just a complete lack of understanding of how it kind of works. I guess sometimes. Yeah, especially that people think it's like, um, and another really tough thing is like how people think. Which, listen, I mean, it's different. Like, once you get to Tyler and Josh's level, it's it's different. Yeah. But 
most people's level, it's like people think, oh, so you're just like showing up and then you're just like in the city, like catching a vibe. And then you go rock the show and it's all a groove and then you party and this and that. I'm like, the real truth of real touring is like you probably almost every night after the show are going to leave. Mm-hmm. If you are really handling your shit and doing a thing, you're probably if you're partying it's in a it's in a very controlled way but i mean for the most well for the most part in terms of people that uh, i in probably both of our worlds it's similar but i have been in other situations where like some people just like can go for that they they it's usually people who haven't toured a lot and yeah. usually you learn your lesson that you just you just can't do it. No. Especially if you're, you're not if you're not doing a bus tour. Yeah. Like if you're in no. a van, it's like you just guess, can't get away with it. I guess know? that's the thing I'm saying. It's like my even when we were doing twenty one pilots, I was in a van. Yeah. I've only ever toured. You guys in a were van. doing a lot of driving on so that tour. People come up you know, it's it's more like friends I know that they're like, you know, link with them in the city and they're like, All right, sick man, let's go this, this and that and they almost get like offended when I'm like, Well, I I mean I yeah, I'm like you're. It's like you're. It's like you're catching me at work and you're bringing me a shot, and I'm like, I can't. Like, I can't do that. Yeah, it's like maybe I'll do that one, but yeah, I, that, that one. but then I'm done. Yeah. You have to realize that I'm not. Like, I have to perform tomorrow, and I have to perform at like seven. You know, yeah. not even like late at night, like yeah. on a on a different PM. type of tour. Yeah. So, uh, I forgot yeah, about that. and I have to drive there. the The bus versus the van makes a massive difference. And when I talk to certain friends who are like indie rock bands like headlining their own small club tours but yeah. like they're in a van yeah and i was talking to my buddy about days off and he was doesn't he feel was, like a day well a he day was off. kind of like well i mean i love a day off because it means we don't have to drive through the night and it's like well yeah that's a huge difference between on a bus yeah my, what i was saying is like days off can be boring because you're just like what do we do today you know it's it's like a completely different i would kill pers- for that. yeah exactly no i i'm glad i've 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 lived a uh a hard four or five years on the road in a van because I feel like once I finally get to the bus thing, it's just, I yeah. mean, I appreciate it in a way like few people do, mm-hmm. you know, not that well, they're, I, I hadn't been in a bus until I did one bus tour like two years ago and it was two bands sharing one bus. So it wasn't even Ooh. like our spot and it was 12 people Ooh. on a 12 person bus. Stink. So it wasn't even like, it wasn't pleasant. That wasn't until, a bus. That was a, that was a stink tube. Yeah. It, it, that was a, that was a tube of foot. Well, like, so the shower in the bus was just where we stored our shoes, you know, like there was, where there was no the private feces. space anywhere. No. And the, and it was an old shitty bus. But I was still like, well, at least I can sleep during the night rather than driving. But AWOL was the first time I was really on a bus. And that that was after seven years of van tours, you know? Like, and I, I slept her once before remember, that. Remember in Boise when I didn't, uh, when they were so behind on this past tour that I actually oh, right. didn't get a set? That night is the only night I have ever slept on a tour bus. Because I went to the production manager and everyone and I said, listen to me. I'm okay. obviously what can I say? Thank you guys for having me out. Yeah. It sucks I don't get a set. It is what it is. Yeah. Let my people go. I was like Moses. <laughs> yeah. I was like, <laughs> let them start driving. I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna do the covers. It's funny how Tyler was like. Yeah, right. And then you stayed on. <clears throat> you went on one of their buses. Right? Exactly. Which was in, which was honestly, and it was a nice bus. And everyone I was on the bus with was like some of my favorite people on the tour. So mm-hmm. it was chill. But when I was sleeping, I've honestly slept so much on a on a van bench. Mm-hmm. I expected to feel so much more like, oh man, I'm in like a Hilton suite. It's it was not, a nice it's bunk. It's not that great. No, it's the <laughs> it's same as sleeping not. in a van. You just have your own little. It's just more space. It's private, yeah. It's in and, and, and you don't have to worry about like. 
I don't know. Well, if you're on a bu- if you have a not the best bus driver too. Oh yeah. A- and um, I, there was one time where like we all woke up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. because it was the most rocky ride. And what happened is something in the shocks broke, so mm. the bus just felt like it was off roading the whole time. And y- you can't sleep like that. No. You're just bouncing in the bunk. So it's not it's not always like super pleasant. The the benefit is like. On special on those tours, it's like, well, I can sleep in until two if I wanted to, and no one's gonna disturb me. And there's like air conditioning, and it'll be cold. Yeah, two p.m. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, because the buses don't leave on that tour until four, so I didn't fall asleep till five (laughs) or six most nights. On that tour, seriously? Yeah, I'm not even from partying. Because I would lay in the bunk, and then you get in the bunk at like two, and you're like trying to fall asleep, but I, I, you get anxiety knowing the bus is going to start moving in an hour or two. And like that, it will wake me up mm. because it's like a big jolt. So then mm-hmm. I wait, I wait until the bus starts moving. And then, then you're like wired from staying up. I don't know. Like, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I'm complaining about a great situation, but yeah. it, it's not always incredible, but, yeah, it, listen, but it's I nice. Mean, you know, when you finally find a a moving place to sleep after the the mountains of, of cocaine you guys were doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I understand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, and that that was your first arena tour. What was the like? What was the biggest tour you had done before that? I mean, I had thank God I had opened for Panic at the Disco for three shows in Texas and Oklahoma the summer before that tour we did what, together. was that as bigger rooms yes okay and thank god because and i say that because when i found out i was actually going to go on that tournament pilot that was like somebody telling me that like i that like a spaceship was going to come down like that tour for me was literally like a spaceship came down from space and like pulled me up and took me around the earth it was it that to me that's <laughs> how unreal that seemed to me that that was mm-hmm. actually happening you know because even because i'd really come to a point and i really did, still am did at it this feel point. out of the blue yes absolutely yeah because i i had my little tour plan my club tour mm-hmm. i had just dropped my record i was about to start my little tour in two weeks and then got a tentative call from my management that was like hey Oh, so you had to push your whole tour back. i canceled the whole thing because they go hey they're like look we know this is weird um but tentatively, if this were to happen, would you want to cancel? And I won't say who, but there was another tour in the summer that I had been like confirmed for. And it okay. was a big tour. And after I was confirmed, the co-headliner person mm-hmm. really wanted someone else. And it turned into some beef. And then it turned into me literally then I didn't get the tour. Okay. So I was so in this place of like, listen... Don't bother me with this bullshit. Yeah, kind of like 21 unless pilots, it's real kind yeah, of Yeah, I was thing. like, 21 Pilots is not going to take me on tour. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I'll see you later. Don't bother. I, I literally just told him, I don't want to hear about this anymore. <laughs> but we need an answer. Would you cancel? Of course I would cancel, but that's not going to happen. Leave yeah, me alone. Yeah. I hang the fu- I forgot the conversation even happened. And then two days later, my manager called me. He was like, whoa, Nelly. Whoa, <laughs> Nelly. All right. And I was like, no way. You know, that was like. So you did you just move up basically uh, I had for, to cancel for, the for whole listeners tour. too. Like you just got back from your first headlining tour yeah. of this record cycle. Yes, and that and that's the tour that you had moved yes. basically from the fall because you did the Twenty One Pilots tour. And did do you think that you ended up seeing like much bigger numbers at these shows because of doing the Twenty One Pilots tour? I think so. I definitely look. I mean, I know I made fans. 
I saw them every night. Mm-hmm. The ones that I was making during the show and the ones that I saw whenever I came back to those markets. It was an obvious difference when I would play a city on this tour that I hadn't played with you guys in 21 Pilots. Okay. It was an obvious difference. Yeah. Not necessarily in the number, but mm-hmm. in like the energy. Yeah. The thing, the two things I didn't expect were one that canceling a tour actually is a pretty big deal. People yeah. People were really pissed about that. Yeah. Luckily, it was off announcing positive news and off of like a trajectory that was a good thing. Yeah, that, that's people, like the only reason to do it, really. But you know, if someone was a big fan and wanted to go, I was saying, hey, so this $15 ticket you bought, you're not refunded. If you want to come see me play for 25 minutes, you can spend 200 bucks to see you in an arena. Well, Actually, no, it you was, can't because it's, it's all sold out. Sold out. Never mind. So you just cannot see me yeah. now. So people were pissed. Not, I mean, look, it wasn't like some super flack thing. It's more I what su- I, I assume people were, under, were some people upset understood. and understanding. But it's also, despite the Internet's uh, cognizance of our information, we still seem to – it's hard to get the point across sometimes. Yeah. People didn't know why I had canceled. They were literally just showing up to venues going, the show's canceled. It's like you didn't check your email. You don't look at Instagram. You don't yeah. tweet. I don't know. But So I actually do think that there were some markets where canceling – and then coming back, I wouldn't be surprised if there were 20 to 50 people I would have had there that I didn't have. But then I think – Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's some people who just like didn't come back the second time around. But the main thing that that tour gave me, other than what it instilled in me as a performer and just the experience of being out there and seeing those guys and seeing you guys and just soaking every second of it that I could, was it actually like – the associative, like the fact that a band that's that great mm. would allow me to come and sweep up the poop of the elephants in the beginning <laughs> like that was like, it just made people suddenly be like, oh, so like this is legit. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you felt like it was really validating of your career. But beyond, yeah, like literally to the point of I felt like the way people treated me as a artist suddenly became like something... Like they they respected me all of a sudden. When people see you, a photo of you on a stage in front of that many people, it's like my my like my family who's been uh, like parts of my family are uncles that are kind of like, yeah, this is cool, man. But when are you gonna like give it up and like you know? Yeah, that and that it, conversation's finally is done after yeah. that tour. And so like it, yeah, on that tour, it was nice. Even though I'd be like, yeah, well, we're headlining the Will Turn two nights in a row. And it's like, okay, that's, well, that, not that's cool. But that's you a know, lot of people. <laughs> but then it's like, well, uh, yeah, I literally at a family dinner, I I responded with like, we're playing at the Forum if you want to come. And my yeah. uncle's like, can you get us tick the Forum? Like, can you get yeah. us tickets to yeah. that show? And like, that's it. Now it's like dropped, you know? I, I have a... <laughs> Which is funny because actually headlining your own show at the Wiltern, I think, is a bigger deal than opening for someone at the Forum. But One of the coolest things that ever happened in my whole career was I, right when I was about to do a publishing deal... At, at BMG, uh, Andrew Gould and Zach Katz asked me, give us a short list of like your dream collaborators and just send it to us and who knows. Mm-hmm. And so I literally, as a joke, was putting some of these names down. Like I was like, Jeff Tweedy was one of the names. Mm-hmm. And then like a week later, if anyone out there who doesn't know who Jeff Tweedy is, he's in this band called Wilco from Chicago. They're amazing. They're like... Do you know the record of Ghost is Born? Of course. This is the this tattoo is from okay. the inside of that record so on I'm, vinyl. So I'm not <laughs> having to explain it to you. No, no, yeah. <laughs> but I'm explaining to anyone out there who's like, who's Jeff Tweedy? He's in an amazing band. He's like one of my favorite songwriters. The band is incredible. The albums are incredible. And his story 
as someone who persevered really through the industry telling him that what he was doing wasn't worth it is super inspiring to me aside from the fact that he's just I feel like one of the last like great songwriters of the, of a certain kind you yeah know? totally so I it comes back through the grapevine like hey yeah he's down to do some sessions which mm-hmm. I'm like he does sessions I'm like what is and then I and then I remember even my A&R at the time is like this guy who like signed Bruno Mars and he's like Jeff Tweedy like, does sessions? He doesn't but he did it was <laughs> it's like he's produced some stuff for like White Denim and some other yeah, yeah he's produced some people. you know so I guess I don't I couldn't believe it I think honestly after we hung out I think that he was he probably looked at what who I was and what I was doing at the time and he was so puzzled that I would ask nor from the case of he's just like what or I don't, I don't yeah. I can't make sense of it all I know is that yeah, oh just from cuz the way your music sounds I don't think Jeff Tweedy you know what I mean I don't think he would like any of it <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say that like you don't have to say it you can be around the bush I think Jeff Tweedy would be like this guy fucking sucks he would not like I don't like know it. about that I don't think he would fuck with <laughs> it but he then is like I flew to Chicago and we went and worked for 2 days in the Wilco studio but Fuck. it really just became me I, yeah, I trying would. not to like – I really decided – because there's, there's been a couple times in my life where like weird meteors have crashed into my earth like that creatively where I've always at least been able to just like take off the hat of like I'm going to freak out and just not go there. Mm-hmm. And later all that hits me. Yeah. And so we actually wrote a cool song that's never come out. And we, but we also just talked a lot, and I asked him a lot of questions, and and I say all that to say to go back to what you were just talking about with the forum, that so I've had his number. This is like four years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so funny to look back at the text conversations. It's only one text conversation he and I ever have. It's me going the day of or the day before. Hey Jeff, I'm in town. I'm playing um, the Scloody Scloob, like some shithole place. Hope you can make it. Knock him dead, Max. Can't make it. Next time. Hey, man, I'm playing Lincoln <laughs> Hall. Hope you can make it. Knock him dead. Hey, man, I'm playing Chicago Theater. Hope you can make it. And then this last time. United I'm, Center. I'm like, yo, man, I'm playing the United Center. Hope you can come. Same text response. But I know he had to have at least looked at the thread <laughs> and been like, okay. Like, oh, it's, it's, dude, <laughs> they, they, the venues which keep is, getting bigger. <laughs> which, is, which is misleading because I, I really still am a Lincoln Hall level guy. But it was just funny to like to see that as yeah. the text conversation with somebody like that, you know. Cause, That's really funny. But yeah, that was, a, that was also a crazy thing of like one of the real cliches coming true of like, oh, wow, like when you're doing arenas, like the whole gag of like, where are we tonight? Mm-hmm. Like that's really true. Yeah. Cause you just, every arena looks the same from the inside. Yeah. I've, I mean, I got confused but many times on that. Just tour. When similar enough to be confusing. Yeah. Well, when you're just like, and I was probably two or three times where I was inside the arena in the morning and then looking around and thinking, Oh, I'm in, wait, I'm in, wait, <laughs> I'm in Ohio. And then I'm like, Oh sh- no, I'm in like Nebraska. You know, one of my favorite moments of the whole tour speaking of that was that so we would always go side stage before we were about to go up with 21 Pilots. Yeah. And their their crew, by the way, was amazing. Those guys were incredible. Yeah. Like just, and just for people listening, we would do AWOL and Max. We'd get up and do two songs yeah. with 21 Pilots halfway through their set. Yeah, yeah. And we would play Led Zeppelin covers for 30 minutes. No. <laughs> um, and so their, their crew would be like handing us our wireless packs because mm-hmm. they're dialing our stuff. So we're putting our in-ear monitors in. 
and we're getting their mix until they switched scenes. Yeah. And I remember early in the, this is like fourth or fifth show and Tyler's doing the song before we come up and he's like at the piano singing and doing his thing. And then he does that moment where he goes, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Josh Dunn on the drums. Yeah. And Josh does his little thing. And all of a sudden I'm not looking at the stage, but I hear this voice very panicked in my ears going, where are we right now? Somebody tell me where we are for this next verse. But then I look up oh, yeah. and he's he in this moment of where he had a brief break for the attention focus on Josh has turned around and grabbed this other hidden microphone, his talkback yes, mic. Yes, just the talkback for and the crew. And has asked, that, so everyone hears this in the in their ears, but no one hears it through the PA. I think that was St. Louis. Because, it was St. Louis. Because I remember being like, in my head, like, St. Louis, oh man, does he, like, because he had, he, after that moment is when yeah. he goes like, St. Louis, give me, like, exactly. let's hear some noise. Exactly. And then he, and then, but I just, I love the moment of like, piano, he's singing, flips around, grabs the mic, somebody tell me where we are after this next verse, turns around, grabs the mic, <laughs> jumps off the piano, yeah. and is like running back over there. I mean, that guy, talk about a... They're, they're really good performers. Oh my God. <laughs> that really changed... Not just watching their show, but the, I, I really finally got to pin him down and like really grill his brain for every like just take everything mm-hmm. I could out of his that he would offer, which he was super. I'm glad he is as humble and as like. But we've talked about this. I mean, he's an intimidating dude. Oh yeah, totally. So I think well, it was he, he's got like this like kind of casual confidence where like yeah. like even on stage like he just might just be sta- standing there waiting for something to happen, but. Even just like the way he's standing there is kind of you just know he's got it in his head or he's he's, he's in control of the things he's yeah, doing on stage. Yeah. Which was a big thing to steal. <laughs> yeah. I've literally I've stolen so many like literally just the part where he would just walk up to a mic and just say nothing. And it's silent. There's mm-hmm. just been all these songs being played and he's and he's just standing there at the mic and then you just like you're about to talk but then you just don't talk. And you like look at something on your hand, <laughs> and just the the sense of like, wait, is he gonna? T-? People start reacting to that, and then yeah. just something. So how are you guys doing? You guys, you guys, you guys okay? <laughs> I've just taken that because it's like, oh, it's just like. Well, it builds suspense. And yeah. it's just this moment that tells the audience like, because I used to go in this mode of like, okay, move, move, talk, talk, play, mm-hmm. play, play. The people are watching. The people are watching. Play, talk, talk, talk. But it reminds me of something that Jim Carrey said in that documentary about uh when he's playing andy kaufman yeah and he says that he woke up in a sound sleep one night and he goes what do they want what they They want to be free from concern yeah and you have if you're concerned about your performance that within itself is not being free from concern so you kind of have to not care well that's i was just talking to my friend about that as a front man and a singer a lot of your responsibility is dictating how people are supposed to be responding to your music and how they're and, and how they're supposed to feel about it. Right. Because if you you know if you're like losing it and you're basically like weeping as you're singing, they're gonna be like, wow, this is a passion. This is intense. Or yeah. if you're just totally like don't give a shit, you know, it's kind of like, oh, this doesn't mean that much. But right. you, it's your job physically also to convey totally. what, what's happening in you're, the music. You're really an actor up there. You're like a dancer. Well, you're, actor, you're putting singer. on a real show. I mean, and the show can be more or less genuine who you are or not, but there's always some affectation that you're putting on to right. be on stage. No, I agree. Because it'd be boring if it's not, especially to people that know you at all, because then it's not exciting, you know? You, you want to be a little suspended. Yeah, because I think that's the, that's the thing that I really finally had to come to grips with about well, really all of art, but especially performances. You know, you used to I used to think like, oh, it's, you know, if you do some big hand motion or if you're you know 
especially with my body for a long time, I felt like it's cheesy. I felt like I was going to be cheesy, but I finally had to come to accept that it's like me, Max, the guy, I don't do those things. Mm -hmm. But when you go on stage or when you step into a booth, you're playing a character. Tyler as a person Mm -hmm. of 21 pilots, like, that's probably the most dynamic difference of a person between who he is on stage and what he's like to talk to I've honestly ever met in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And then he gets on a stage and he does and he's wearing a mask and he's, yeah. he's it's it's like he is becoming another human. And you're not thinking about him as him. You shouldn't be, you know. Yeah. That's I think that I think that's why certain performers that really get lost in it like Michael Jackson was like, I am Michael Jackson. Yeah. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, it, I mean, the only thing I will say about that is there's like, there are the typical things in terms of like people that take on a persona. And then there, I don't know, it's kind of like, there are certain things where like there's the rule and there's exception to the rule. And the thing we're talking about, I feel like the the realm of the exception to the rule is larger than a normal thing like that, where there's like, there are people where, like, like Jay Tillman, Father John Misty, he's kind of, like, uh, always that character mm. all the time, from what it seems in any interview, I've heard that any guy's live a, show. Uh, huge asshole. I don't know. You can keep that in. Or I don't know. I, I've just I, heard that guy's in it. I've never heard someone be like, yeah, he's a real nice guy. I really I, like him. I've heard mixed <laughs> r- reviews of him. I mean, I I probably will have to cut this out. I just interviewed his bass player. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, you, can, you can keep it in. They can come at me. I don't, uh, I don't care. Well, the thing I will say <laughs> is, like, so I have a friend who's a promoter, and she was telling me a story of how, like, after he played at the show, he came down to like the after party at this bar uh-huh. that was just for like the promoter and the band, um, or the pro- promotion company and the band. And she was annoyed at how when he came down, everyone's kind of like, oh, he's here, you know, this like larger than yeah, life guy. Yeah. And then he like, like to, he decides he's going to show everyone a couple new songs he's working on. So he sits down at the piano at the bar and plays for everyone and, how it's kind of like you gotta like come down here and then play your music for us after we just saw your show, and then when he was walking out, he like flipped a table over that people had drinks on just for the fuck of it. Yeah. And it's like you can look at that and say like that was just kind of an asshole thing that he did, but you can also look at it and say like this is a guy that knows exactly what he can get away with. Yeah. And if if all of life is kind of like a a work of art for somebody, right. kind of good for him because I. <laughs> Who the fuck else is doing it? I live for stories of people taking liberties as artists. And and I would be so bored by our industry if there weren't these tall tales of these crazy characters. And I think we're in a kind of a boring time right now where people aren't utilizing the powers that they have in certain ways. And yeah, on a small scale, flipping over a table is kind of fucking annoying. But after you clean that table up, the story is still there. And I kind of think that that's worth it sometimes. I, I, just for I, inspiring people. I agree. And Not the, to be assholes, but just to like right, but, think of like this larger-than-life world that there is. Well, when you think about... Well, he, I guess here's here's what I would... Uh, here's the little dovetail I put into that. Is like when I hear stories about Prince, mm-hmm. I never... If I thought of it... If someone had told me the same story about Prince and it was... Father John Misty yeah. said, I just think to myself, what? Like, he can't get away with that. But when I hear it's Prince, 
I've bought into the legend of Prince. I've bought into that Prince is this thing because the music has moved me to that point. Yeah. I guess I just personally can't say I'm enough of a fan or think that Father John Misty is so great that he can get away with some crazy shit like that because I'm like, I also think he's doing that shit on purpose. I think I can tell when someone's being weird on purpose versus when they are like legitimately, they have no choice. Like I think Prince actually was a crazy person. He had no way out. I think he took liberties to a point because nobody was ever going to tell him no. Well, I, there's definitely that. There's also like he he got to a point where he could allow himself to be uncaged, you know, mm-hmm. because he because the world was open to him. I right. I think there was there are choices in terms of like allowing yourself to be that way. And if he wasn't afforded the opportunity to to do that, he probably wouldn't have because he didn't seem like a, across the board like lunatic you know but uh but i also think that like i also think which i don't even know if we want to go down this road but like i I, i've come to a place with all the stuff that's happened recently between you know ryan adams or further back that Mm -hmm. like i've come to decide i i think that i am choosing to accept that great art can come from terrible people and that the human beings behind great works most of the time they suck yeah and some are worse than others and i'm not condoning it but what i am saying is that i've decided to me uh imagine is not any worse a song because john lennon like hit his wife or something Mm -hmm. or ignition is not a bad song because r kelly is a monster or nor so i guess for me i'm like to me the art has to stand as its own beacon in order for what orbits it to yeah. even come close to being acceptable. And in the case of Father John, which I literally, I don't even know anything about this person. I wish I should stop <laughs> even saying this. I don't even know who that is. I know he played drums in the Fleet, Fleet Foxes. Yeah. And I know he had a Twitter I'm, feud I'm with I'm a Ryan big Adams. fan of his records. Then I'm going to step off the plate on, on John, <laughs> no, Father John. No, I, I, you are entitled to have I'm, an opinion. But I don't, I I'm not entitled to have an opinion it. because I've literally never sat down and been like, I'm going to listen to Father yeah. John Misty now. But sometimes uninformed opinions are such a good gut shot at something that it's, <laughs> I'm gonna it's, look it it's, up it's worth pursuing. Like Stephen Colbert. I'm going to look it up in my gut. I'm not going to look it up in a book or online or some <laughs> fake thing. I'm looking it up in my gut. I, I will say that what you're talking about in terms of uh, judging art by the transgressions of the person who created it yeah. is, to me, something that actually needs more exploration because yeah. just writing it off the way you are or vice versa, I think, is not doing... It's not fair to the art itself. Yeah. Or... But well, for many reasons, like right. people definitely treat music differently than other works of art. Whereas, yes. like, if if people were really pissed off about like the Ryan Adams thing, so they're not going to listen to his music, right? I think then they should, I don't know, maybe look deeper on all the things that they do appreciate. Because I'm, I, yeah. I, I fear that if we were to look back at these great works of art and architecture and paintings you would yeah. find that the creators were pretty brutal guys a lot of the time because like Picasso well because artists <laughs> usually aren't the most stable people if you were to like take a yeah. pool of artists versus a pool of like accountants they're bad at being human <laughs> beings that's why they make art I'm not well, saying it excuses it I'm just saying like if you think that the people who come up with stuff that's as dope as some of these people we could name mm-hmm. if you think that they are doing all that because they're walking around functioning totally fine. You're you well, because you're not. They're not. Artists typically aren't the most complacent people. They just don't know <laughs> how to be human beings. Or, they, I don't or, know. or they're uncomfortable being human beings. Yeah. So that's what. Um, 
pushes them to be creative. But the other thing I will say is it's it's not just that too because art only really exists with context and there's lots of songs that I didn't love until I found out right. um which I always use the cheap trick I want you to want me song mm. as a great example because I remember working in the studio and this producer talking about the song and I was like I never really loved that song that much and he yeah. was like why not and I was like it just seems kind of like I want you to want me like kind it just of seems kind of weird and he was like it's about his dad oh. and then it's like Holy shit, that's one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. Right. Like, that is the most beautifully angsty song about wanting to have acceptance from your father. Like, yeah. And that shit is heavy as fuck. And that changes the entire context. But then, you know, there's lots of songs I might like where if I found it, it's like, well, he was writing this because he wanted to kill kids. You're like, well, Jesus, <laughs> now I don't really like that song anymore. Yeah, I mean, I will say that. So the context also does affect it. Like, AJ, nothing but a number. <laughs> context of that has changed for me on that particular yeah. record so it's I, not it's I, not black and white yeah. when it comes to like uh just because you did something bad your art is still good because it, it it it's it becomes more complicated because of the context but we are now living in a world w w tell me if you agree with this though that, that you and i can sit here and we can have this conversation and come to terms with these things mm -hmm. but i feel like most of culture most of western culture now is uh so hair trigger now that it's like, oh, you did this. Now everything you've ever done is now in the folder of like, yeah. I could judge you, Mike, for even listening to it. Yeah. I could be like, you listen to that? You listen. And then I could want to conflict with you because of something. That to me is where I go, okay, but hold on a second. So well, we're going <laughs> to be the. We live know. in a society of generalizations, and it's and that's a big problem because I think we, we've passed the point where our kind of group think and our like combined our combined knowledge mm -hmm. we rely too much on whereas like n people don't actually search deep enough beneath the surface and if you don't do that for long enough you just live your life as if everything's headlines so mm. i think one of the biggest things people need to understand is that just because someone is a great person doesn't mean that everything they say is right and great. Right. And just because someone's a bad person doesn't mean everything that they say is bad and wrong, too. So it's like nothing is black and white and everything's gray. Martin Luther King was cheating on his wife all the time. The FBI like has all these <laughs> tapes on it. Does, yeah, that, but, does that take away in any way from what that person's significant? Which he's not an artist, so that's different. Yeah. Maybe that's actually my point is that. Just because someone makes great art doesn't make them like Martin Luther King. Yeah. Like, that doesn't mean that they stand for anything. Yeah, that they're a great person. You know what I mean? It just means that, like, they made something that you like empirically. It's a thing. It's just mm -hmm. a noise. It's a sound. It's a painting. It's a movie. Yeah. Whatever. But, and the, the thing about conflict, it's like, it makes no sense to really, to generalize anybody. Because, ultimately, like, if you were to just take a step back and be like, all right, Oh, no, I was having this argument with someone, and they're like, yeah, I don't understand why these people on the right think this. And I was like, well, have you ever yeah. genuinely tried to understand? Yeah. Like, have you actually tried to be like, well, why would you feel that way? Yeah. Like, because the answer isn't usually because they're a bad person. No. It, it, it might be because there's ignorance and because there's cultural references that they grew up with. But it's never that, like, they are a bad person because that same person feels that same way about you. And so if you're not willing to be like, maybe I should try to understand how they feel, which no one really ever wants to, you're just going to end up hating everybody. Change of the train tracks here. I yeah, got a question for probably you. Probably a good time. I got a question for you. How do you deal with the tour hangover? And by the tour hangover, I mean that sense of you're moving, you're moving, you're moving. And it's almost a sense of like 
vertigo in your life because every day is a new place. Every day is new people. It's a show. It's excitement. It's mm-hmm. energy. It's energy. And then all of a sudden, it's silence. Yeah. How I, do you deal with that? It's actually changed quite a bit for me in the last few years. For the first like six to seven years of touring since I was like 18, it had been a growing thing of like, I know if I'm gone for more than three weeks, I'm going to have like a full week of basically depression when I get home. Like I'm going to get home and it's going to feel awesome the first day and maybe even the second day, but then I'm going to hit a rut where I'm like, I kind of want to just hang out and be around people because I'm so used to it, but I also want my solitude and I'm not happy no matter which I'm doing. And it takes me like a week to fully adjust to like, right, I'm home. Now I'm in a rhythm. But once I actually joining AWOL, I weirdly was like, it was just an entirely different experience and it, it felt like the most legitimate act I've ever played. And so there was like a sense of like professionalism in it, which actually made me, more excited to be home because I knew I was going to be gone so much. Mm. So I can I could rely on like the the amount of touring ahead of me as like cool. I don't have to take my life at home so seriously. Yeah. Like I can just write music and be free when I'm home now, which was felt like a blessing. But um, when there's not like a certain amount of work ahead, then it definitely I'm like fuck. I have to transition back into being a real person at home now. Yeah. And yeah, it, I just need a literal. <laughs> seven to eight days of being sad about it and then i just get out of it and that's kind of it yeah but what's your experience i asked because i haven't figured it out especially because i knew coming off of that particular tour i mean that was so so exciting and so (coughs) unreal Mm. (coughs) i literally from the first show i was like Wow, this is so incredible. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this not being my reality <laughs> yeah. anymore. Yeah. <coughs> because and I just I just miss everyone off that tour, mm-hmm. man. I miss I miss their security people. I hang out with their head of security guy still. Oh, uh <laughs> Tom Rob. <laughs> the guy who did Metallica for Yeah, he years? came to my show in the Troubadour. Oh, we man. still hang out. I like <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, like I miss that was so like I just miss it. I felt like I got sent back to like, yeah. It's like I. It's like I went to Hogwarts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, everyone, and you're waiting for next year. Everyone was like superheroes. Like I remember, like meeting Isaac, like y'all's drummer, and being like, "Oh, who's this? Like, who's this dude? Like, you know, he's just chilling. He's just a normal dude." And then he got on a drum set, and I was like, "Oh, so these people are all like superheroes. <laughs> like yeah. everyone here has like magic powers." And I honestly, the way that I dealt with it is I just didn't, I just didn't stop. I just, if I saw that I was about to go home, I would just book a trip somewhere so that it felt like I was still moving. Yeah. And I didn't stop moving. I literally, today, I still have not stopped moving. I literally have just kept it going until the next tour. Like, I'll just keep moving. Because mm-hmm. I can't, I don't want to wait. I don't want to feel that sense of like, uh, which is probably a bad thing, you know? Well, it depends on where it's coming from. If you're putting it off because it's scary, then that could come around and be a bad thing in terms of not yeah. ignoring an issue. But if it's keeping you inspired like, and you're able to do it, it's not necessarily bad. Yeah. I guess I just really, I was worried about the uh, yeah, that, that sadness of mm-hmm. like, oh, it's over. Because I, mean, it I mean, I literally, the last show was standing side stage 
like thinking like almost having tears in my eyes like this is so fucked up that this is the last one please i'm like god don't let this be over god don't let this be over well and that's our, our our experience was quite a bit different and i only because at the end i was we were flying back on thanksgiving yeah and that was my birthday and because of the fires that were happening in L.A. Yeah, you guys were kind of ready to call it. Well, there was that, and my my parents had moved <clears throat> to the East Coast, and they weren't supposed to be in town for my birthday or Thanksgiving, but they were to help out their friends because You didn't of the tell fire. anybody that was your birthday. The last show was your birthday? The day before the last show. You didn't tell yeah. anybody that. I don't go around to being like, it's my birthday. This record you put out, Gold Rush. Yes. That's your first full-length album? It is. On, on, on the label and just the full legit... Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've probably made enough songs for albums before. Yeah, like this is really like my fifth album of songs I've written in terms of catalog. But I've lived a my career has been bizarre. And I say that in a positive way and in a negative way. The way I got into the business wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. The everything about my career has at every step has been strange. It was like always just kind of like, um, like for instance, normal that I would get signed off of a song I made in my door. A lot of people have that story. They mm-hmm. make a song and that goes viral for them and that's how they end up getting a record deal. Mm-hmm. Not as normal that like I was robbed right before the song went viral so I didn't have the stems and got signed by a label which i never lied to them but they just never really were like so by the way like you have all the stems for this right like they never Mm -hmm. no one ever asked me that question i was like popping the champagne like yeah let's do this thing but the whole time in the back of my mind i'm like i don't have any of this music actually so (laughs) but that you know well you couldn't just recreate it no no because you know you could try Mm -hmm. but this is the song i'm talking about was a song called white lies that it's just had a vocal that was like I, I wasn't gonna get the vocal again. I tried. I re- I really tried. Mm-hmm. But you, c- you you couldn't get it again. And the beginning of my evolution as a as a touring artist was rough because I got signed before anybody had ever seen me do a show. Really? I had done shows. You didn't do a showcase that like the label saw. Hell no. This song had done well enough online, and they were excited enough about it where I walked in as a 20-year-old kid in a fucking Hanes t-shirt or something in khakis. How old are you now? Looking like a square son of a bitch. To like 26. I'm about to okay. turn 26. I walked in. I was about to turn 21. I walk in, and they were ready to sign me off of a song, but, but which it helped that it was like, well, he's produced it himself. It's He played all the instruments. He yeah. wrote the song, blah, 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 blah. So it wasn't like they were worried, like, is this a, a flute guy who like stole the record, or is it somebody else? Yeah. But I literally had never done like a real proper sh- I mean I had done shows I've been playing in bands my whole life mm-hmm. and the gigs I had done I would just have people you know a drummer a bass player a keyboard player backing me up and I'd do my thing and I'd like wear a tie because I thought that made me look legit on stage made me look like a freaking idiot but <laughs> then right as I was signing um, Gary Clark Jr. from Austin who I used to open for in a band a blues band I was in hits me up and he's heard white lies and he heard, hears that I'm signing and we link back up in New York and hang out and then they asked me to come on tour with them. So I round up a bunch of guys from Austin that I know 
And I basically just go out there and go, hey, I guess this is how you play live. You just get people you know to come play the instruments. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand anything about how to put a show together. I didn't understand anything about how to make something musically fresh, especially in the context of once you have a record out there that sounds like something, especially when a company is like wanting to put their nuts behind it. Like I knew that the wheels were going to come off the bus. I just didn't even know how to fix it. I was just like, I don't know what to do. I just hired my friends to come play, but, but the show was bad. The show was bad. And I knew the show was bad because um, I would like open for Gary and there'd be like 2000 people there. And I'd go to my merch booth afterward and like nobody would come talk to me. Yeah. I knew that that wasn't a good thing. And, yeah. uh, and then, you know, we do the show at Terminal 5 and the labels like the next day, like, so uh, the show is absolutely awful and you need to get a whole new band and like recreate how you're doing your show live. Mm-hmm. So that led me to the next phase live, which was I got this offer to go out with Fitz and the Tantrums. That happened because I met Michael Fitzpatrick, the lead singer of that mm-hmm. band, uh, at a Warner after party in like 2014 after the Grammys. I came up to him and said I was a big fan of his record because I had just heard the album. More Than Just a Dream was a huge hit on alternative radio whenever I was yeah. touring with Gary Clark Jr. So I was a fan. I was like, this stuff's awesome. And I saw him standing there. That I was said, when I was touring with Megan. We did a bunch of shows with them exactly. off of that cycle for them. Which those songs, I love those songs. And, and, and Michael becomes a big piece of this picture as I'll keep laying the story down if this isn't part of what we should even be doing. No, it's, it's good. And um, luckily his manager is standing there, has kind of heard of me. She connects us. We end up writing together. And then he asked me to come out on this tour. And so then I got my first taste of of a real music-directed situation. It was a guy mm-hmm. named Andre Gill, who's from New York, who's done like John Mayer, mm-hmm. Alicia Keys, a bunch of people, still a good friend. So the, the label hook you up with him yes, to well, help actually the show it was together. Rob Light at CAA who connected us to him. Okay. And so Andre is like the smoothest dude, beast, you know, but but also a great sense of humor. It's easy to be around. But he literally just kind of was like, all right, like, who do you want? And, like, what do you want in the band? And introduced me to people. And it was really thrown together very, very quickly. And you were playing with the full band back then. Yeah, this is – I and at the time it was, like, drummer, keyboard player, bass player. Mm-hmm. Who, a guy who, could ba- who really was a bass player. Uh, Jamie Petrelli is his name. He's a fucking amazing musician, still one of my best friends. He really was like, could play keys, but was like willing to adapt it for the purpose of what I needed in the show. Mm-hmm. I was pretty much just playing guitar. And then out of insecurity for how much track was going to be involved in what we were doing, I was like, well, we have to get some, so like, we got a girl who was singing keys in, uh, singing and playing keys. Mm-hmm. We throw this thing together and literally rehearse it for like two days. It was insanely stressful. Um, label comes in. That was kind of my first real like showcase was like, after yeah. they'd seen how bad letting max run with his toys was it was like okay so then they show up and all you know heads of the company come sit down and do the thing yeah which was terrifying and uh but it went well enough you know yeah and then i went and did that tour and i could see the difference it was like oh when you have a show that's been worked out and you open for someone and there's thousands of people in the room people will if your show is good, there'll be a line in front of your merch booth. Yeah. Well, also, I feel like you opening for Fitz Made more makes sense. way more sense than Fitz. Uh, but at the like time... Like, people going to Gary Clark Jr. show, if they right. don't see, like, a rockin' band that knows their shit, they're going to be like, fuck this. Totally. Whereas, like, the fans that are going to Fitz, they want to be excited by the music more than they want to see, like, a technically good guitar player. Fitz tour was rad. And then 
the next tour I did, I had changed management and it was a much smaller tour. It was opening for this band called Wild Child. And so I, and I was also like running out of money, like mm-hmm. big time. And I had no one else there. Like the first two tours, it was like my management at the time was just like, oh, we can get tour support. So let's just like rent out a crazy expensive massive van. Let's hire like seven people to be out on the road yeah. with us and let's just go run the train, which was so dumb. That costs like $50,000 a month and they'll pay for it, but they'll only pay for it for so long. So, yeah. which is just a bad thing. It's like you're digging a trench for yourself and you don't need to. And there are different theories in terms of like how much to ask and for when. I asked for 21 Pilots, zero dollars. So basically, so let me continue for, with how yeah. this all connects back to like why the one man show thing is happening now. Mm. The, the Wild Child Tour kicked my ass. I was like, completely running out of money so i was doing crazy things trying to make up for it mm-hmm. i was tour managing it myself borrowing their uh van you know the guys who i had out with me bless their hearts good friends of mine were spoiled ass dudes from new york who only knew the life of getting hired to tour and were not about to step up and really help me out yeah honestly so i was having like daily like like shaking of the hands at the wheel drive just like panic just freaking yeah. out got through it and then the next time a tour offer came around it was for a similar sized band called Grizzfolk. Mm-hmm. so it's club tours they could do the business and initially they were and i had new management at this point still my management to today yeah. and they were like well look listen you can come do this but we don't want you to do it solo Meaning, because I had been like, yeah, I'll open for them like acoustic guitar or something. Mm. But they're like, no, we want it full band. I'm like, okay, but I can't afford that. The label won't give me money. So then the idea of doing something that felt like full band by myself, it was the first time I had to ever really try to be like, okay, is this even possible? Because it's something I had thought about as like a, yeah, what if? Mm. But it seemed ridiculous. I mean, it's still today to me now seems ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's more just that necessity pushed me to the point to figure out what can work about that. Yeah. And so the first concept of it was like a drum kit, a keyboard, and picking. It was like creating this little circle around myself Mm -hmm. to do these things. And I went and opened for them. And it, it worked enough. You know, it wasn't like... It basically what I decided I was going to try to do was take advantage of the fact that we have as a society accepted that someone standing at a DJ booth is a performance. Yeah. And by take advantage of that I mean that it's about the audience as much as it's about what's happening on stage. Mm-hmm. And me trying to find some middle ground of like, I am not a DJ. I'm going to play these instruments. I'm going to sing these songs. Yeah, I'm going to perform. You're kind of like, you're acknowledging that you're playing to tracks, but you're also like demonstrating that like, it's out of necessity um, and I'm for the performance it. rather than it's out of like your lack of ability to do it. It's It's like I've basically tried to find a way to be like, if I had 10 of me up here, I could do this all right now Mm -hmm. but there's just one so i'm gonna kind of like because now the show a lot of times i don't even i used to be really way more neurotic about like the loop thing Mm -hmm. being like 
everything, anything that was going to be played, I had to play it first and then it loops mm-hmm. or whatever. But the more I got into the show, the more I realized that element matters to some people and that sprinkles some authentic salt into it and me playing instruments is important but what really mattered more than any of that was me being in it with the audience and being right here it it couldn't be me staring down at the guitar and staring down at the drums and looking like I'm doing a science project. Yeah. I always say it's like I had to find a way to take a, 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 a quote-unquote loop show and make it a rock show instead of a science project. Mm-hmm. And so it kept evolving, and I kept finding out like, oh, well, if I have a second microphone over here, I can step out from behind all this bogus stuff. Yeah. And then every time I went out on tour, you know, I did, so I did the Grizzfolk thing, and then I started doing my own headline tours, trying to do this one man thing. And, you know, it's like, it's something that kind of got tempered over a couple of years. And really where it finally came to the point of me being like this, when I got the panic at the disco dates, at first I thought panic at the disco was like a band that did theaters. Or I didn't really, I kind of knew who they were, but then I looked at their Instagram and I was like, Oh, this is going to be fucking <laughs> insane. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, this is not going to work. You know, like the one man show thing can't possibly work in an arena. Mm-hmm. And so, but I went and I went for it and, and it, and it worked, you know, I mean, at least to the point of like, it was the most like needle moving three shows of my whole career. Yeah. And just in that it was like, I would do a show and get like 5,000 Instagram followers and suddenly it like, oh, whoa, it yeah. like changed everything. But I'll say all that to say that I'm like so tired of doing the one man show thing. And oh, when really? I and when I do live TV, I get a I get a drummer and, and a keyboard. I get people to come do it because that's in, live that, TV doesn't have time for me to pretend to do all that stuff. You that's know? interesting to hear only because like how I interpreted your thing was like that that's your thing. You know, it's become my thing. Yeah, it, it's yeah. like oh, that's well, especially because you've you've clearly like it takes a while to hone in a real live show. It's so like it, you have, and you have like that little tape thing you built. Like it's right. like, this is the Max Frost experience that right. you're providing. So, um, I could, uh, understand also your kind of like, not regret, but sort of like wishing that that wasn't the thing that was taken away. If, if you're, if you're getting right. over it, what, you know, at least what I would do eventually is have, more people on stage for portions of the show and then it would strip back down or or Mm -hmm. whatever. But even the thing I realized what really took it to another level, like now I think the show is really getting better because I, after watching 21 pilots, they are a duo Mm -hmm. and Josh is a badass drummer and he is a character and a part of that. But Tyler runs the show. It is honestly, it's a one man show. It is a drummer. He is running around that stage he is commanding it and he told him and i live with the same insecurities about the show because there's enough track where if the magic of the performance isn't coming together right it's suddenly the karaoke hour with max frost yeah or it's the karaoke hour with with 21 pilots mm-hmm. it's even easier for them because live drums help you yeah. know i think the best sounding parts of my show are when i'm playing the drums and singing at the same time that's when I'm feeling like this is rocking and this is working. But what I don't like about it is I can't be out there moving. Yeah. Now I, I used to feel super uncomfortable on a mic. I used to it took me a long time to get used to that. I finally now I'm at the place where in my show, when I am playing, I can tell I'm 
getting less juice from the squeeze than if I were just on the mic out there rocking it with people. But it has to be part of it because I'm never going to come totally. out there and just like hit play and then dance around. Yeah. All the I literally spent probably an hour and a half with 21 Pilots' set list laid out on multiple pages where I had organized it through, you know, where are the outfits, where are they on stage, which songs came from which record, where are the moments. I had a list of like organic moments, meaning it's something that happened where the crowd reacts and they didn't ask. Mm -hmm. And then there's commanded moments where it's something happens and they asked. And I had it, I literally had like the schematic for the show and I sat there and literally just looked at Tyler for an hour and a half and was like, okay, so why did this, why does this happen this way? And how did you make that decision? Okay. So when you do this and that's all of that taught me a lot, but the thing that he said to me after the first show changed my thinking about my show more than anything. Cause I went up to him and I, I can't remember how we got there. I said, because I asked him if he was nervous when we were on stage rehearsing with, for those covers. Cause I mean, there was a lot going on, man. I mean, that was yeah. like a whole city of people running around. They've been rehearsing, but we were already behind and it was the first real show since he dropped this album. Yeah. And I said, are you nervous? And he's like, not really. I'm, I'm nervous about this part. I'm nervous about the covers, but I'm not nervous about our set. And I'm like, okay. And then I asked him again later, I, cause I'd watched the show and he's got his people around and I kind of interrupted a conversation and I was like, Hey, I'm like, what are you like, what are you thinking about when you're playing? And he said, he said, I'm never thinking about what I'm seeing or what I'm feeling. I'm always trying to just watch the show as if I were a person in the audience and thinking of it out of body that way. And the moment he really hit me with that is he said, when we used to do shows, when there was nobody there, only a few people there, he said, I realized that they felt worse for us than we could feel for ourselves. That the audience's empathy for you as a performer is greater than it could ever be for yourself. They want to see you do good. Mm -hmm. They want to see you win. So if you can perform to 20 people as if there's 2,000 or 20,000, they will forget and they will enjoy and you will actually perform. And I don't know what it was about that that clicked for me mm -hmm. because I've always been such a... I've been a little bitch on stage. Like the second one thing bums my vibe, I've used to just like, oh, no, I'm, no, I'm over it. No, I mm -hmm. just want to get through it. And my face is like this, just flat. And I just want to get through it. I'm just pissed now. You know, I used to, especially if it was a show. I mean, I've lived through, all right, here we are. We're in Milwaukee. We sold 35 tickets. Okay. Well, let's see if we can see if we can turn this into even feeling like a real show. Well, it's, it's easy to be bummed out about like ticket sales but easy. the easy thing isn't usually the best thing in that situation no. and like it it def, it's like this it can be a you kind of are operating from a sense of entitlement to like you're entitled to have a good crowd or you're entitled totally. to like have the best show exactly. every single night exactly rather than uh any sort of gratitude for being able to play to 35 people that bought tickets exactly to see, like in a state that you're not from and don't go to that often so, mm -hmm. can you grab a beer sure Let's yeah well, we should we'll we should pause. we probably got to wrap this up only cuz I'm going to have to edit a lot of this out only cuz we're getting too long. Fucking shit. <laughs> but uh so but if we can just what I don't know. Let's try to wrap this up in some positive way. What do you have coming up? You know, 
<clears throat> I've got it's going to be an interesting test of this of this version of my show mm-hmm. I've created now because even after you know honing it in with you guys out there on the arena stuff there's going to be new elements like we're doing Lollapalooza now this summer yeah <coughs> this one man show has not been tested on a festival yeah not a real one like that I don't know how that's going to work I don't know how um yeah I never thought about that I may do some dates opening for Rob Thomas Rob oh yeah I don't know how that's going to work Rob yeah. Thomas you know and I'm saying I don't know because there's so many things I literally have a I don't know what's going on with that yeah but I don't know I think uh for me I think being on the road and living your life in a constant state of travel I think gives you a weird duality of a sense of both an appreciation for how nice a place is but also for the fact that all places at the end of the day are almost in a sense the same and that it's really just much more about people and much mm-hmm. more about just can you choose to live in that moment the moment I always tried to grab <clears throat> when we were on that tour was when it was really silent on stage and Tyler was starting Hey Jude and I would sit down on that kit Yeah. and sometimes Josh would come around or you'd sit down or Isaac would sit down like <clears throat> that was the moment to me I was always trying to be like actually shut your brain up for a second and be like look at this yeah like, feel just this. enjoy it yeah. you know what I mean and I'm so glad I did that because I actually did feel like it kept me from feeling like it all went by too fast I mean it mm-hmm. went by fast but I at least really stopped and was like Wow, like almost every night whenever yeah. that would happen, you know? <coughs> We're not smoking weed, by the way. I'm just coughing. Right <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> just getting over being sick. I'm still oh, fighting. Sorry it. to hear, man. Well, on that note, I'm going to let you rest your voice. Yeah, but this has yeah. been really fun talking to you, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll see you around. <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> right. This podcast was brought to you by Aaron Barron's Soap Bars. Please <laughs>